and from little Naramata, BC, showing its heart and its gratitude for frontline workers. Thank you for sharing those sounds, Alexandra. The bells are ringing, and the birds are singing, and the hearts, little tiny itty bitty knitted hearts are on the tree for you. Thank you so much for being on the front lines. And thank you so much for being out there, taking care of our hearts who are staying inside and staying safe. Always happy to kick off with some Rilke. All the worlds of the universe plunge into the invisible as into a yet deeper reality. Certain stars increase in intensity and extinguish themselves in the angel's endless awareness. Others move toward transformation slowly and with great effort, and their next self-realization occurs in fear and terror. We are the transformers of earth, our whole being, and the flights and falls of our love enable us to undertake this task. Sure does. Ask anyone who's gone through a dark night of the soul, and they know that the dawn can be as magnificent as the darkness was brutal. And I'm banking on it. We can't just let this change us. We have got to make this change us. I've been, oh my God, I've been thinking so much. (laughs) All I do is, all I do these days is pray and meditate and cry and dance and lay on the floor, drink a lot of tea, have a lot of conversations. And I have been going deep into why it is that some of us can have transformative events, but not be transformed over the long term. Why do some of us change as a result of suffering and some of us don't? What creates revolutions? What propels ascension? So tragedy and suffering don't change everyone, actually, but it should. That's what suffering is designed to do. It's designed for transmutation. Some of us, we face down cancer. We dissolve the tumor. We have suffering, almost unspeakable heartbreak and loss, and we recover from catastrophes of all kinds. And in those catastrophes, in the the center of that pain, so many of us will beg for mercy. You know, it's the classic, God, if you get me out of this, I promise I will never fill in the blank. I will dedicate myself to this. I will never take that for granted. I will donate. I will give my life over to, yeah? And we change our behavior. We, We do change. We live from our higher self. We clean up our, our diet. We start telling people that we love them and we appreciate them. It's like the people on the deathbed. We look people in the eye and we say, sorry, will you forgive me? You are forgiven. We become really good at intimacy. We surrender to a greater plan. And then, a year, maybe two years later, We might find ourselves buried again in unhealthy habits, that intimacy that we were so good at. It just drifts. We fall back asleep. 
we move back into the familiar comfort of our small self, a smaller life, something more tight. What's happening there is our personality, the small me, the small us, takes over and we're back to just trying to check off things on the bucket list. And when it's all about the bucket list, we get back to willfulness. And when we get into willfulness, we get into excessive self-concern because we're not begging God for mercy anymore. We're not begging God for anything. In fact, we are not talking to spirit that much more, not as much as when we were in our dark night. So how do we fall back asleep? How do we slip out of devotion? How is it that we get spiritually lazy? We stop speaking to our suffering and we move into denying it. For suffering to create transformation, and suffering is always there, that's the nature of human life, so is joy. But for suffering to create transformation, we've got to keep investigating it. We've got to have a relationship with it. Why did it occur? Why does it return? What exacerbates it? What dissolves it? We have to stay determined to keep waking up. This is the nature of being on the path. This is what it means to be mindful. And what we're saying with the term mindful, it's really about being heartful. Because we want to be in a place where we are thinking less and being more. And it is from the heart that we be, that we are present. We have to keep looking into the nature of our lives, to the nature of reality. This is the commitment to seeking truth with a capital T. And the rewards... (laughs) I'm here to remind you, the rewards are plentiful. That commitment to being intimate with our suffering leads to joy every time, all the time. So let's go back to the awakened moment where some of us transform and some of us don't. We see the light. We see the light in our suffering passage and we're transformed. And there's good news to this. That transformation can happen in the twinkling of an eye, biblically speaking. A Course in Miracles calls it the holy instant. Most of us know it as amazing grace. Yogically, it would be called samadhi. It's that state of recognizing union with all. Yeah, it's the light. And in our dark night, When we're pleading for mercy to see the light, we are encanting true change. And it happens. It will happen. And when it happens, when we see that light, when we connect to something greater than ourselves, maybe for the first time in this lifetime, we hand our life over to God fully. We open ourselves up to infinite wisdom. And when you do that, Personal fixation, it takes a backseat. Self-obsession gives way to this surrender to allow spirit to work through us. It's euphoric when we do that. Thy will be done is the path to euphoria. And we're not completely fearless when we do this. We do not need to be completely fearless because humans come with fear. It's part of the creative tension. 
It's part of our healing assignment. But if we're just willing enough, we only have to take one step forward in the direction of higher love, and the ego begins to heal in a profound way. It starts to dissolve. And when the ego dissolves, illusions dissolve. We begin to see the love that's always there. We come to rest in the heart center. And when we do that, the experience is joy. It's rapture. And then we become at ease with joy. We relax into happiness. And then the next requirement of our presence, of our growing, is that we do what it takes to maintain our awareness of that joy state. We experience the joy. We become more at ease with the joy. Now, how can we keep that joy up? You don't actually keep the joy up. What you do is you just maintain your awareness that it exists. It's, it's right here, right now. And we're going to waver. We're going to fall off. We're going to forget about it. We might forget about our joy for long periods of time. We might build up more obstacles, more lies, more illusions, throw in a few addictions. We're just suffering and adding layers and layers onto our awareness of the joy that's always there. But if we keep practicing, if we keep using practices, the tools of mindfulness and heartfulness and meditation and mindful eating and intentional connection and loving kindness, those are tools for alertness, alertness that move you back into alignment with joy. We fall asleep, we wake ourselves up with a practice. We go back to joy. We're going to fall asleep and oh, there's my tool for staying awake. We come back to joy every day, a few times a day with every breath. We're really intentional about it. And here's the next bonus of joy. Being in that state of presence, that joyful beingness, helps us to accept things as they are. And that's going to come in really handy when things get uncomfortable. And this, that accepting things as they are, is equanimity. So we're rooted into the ground of love. We are connected to the mother. That's what presence is, connected to the mother. And when we're connected to the mother, when pain surfaces, we're still rooted in love. Heartbreak happens, mm, still rooted in presence. A pandemic hits, mm, we are still grounded into the force of life. When our dreams get dashed, that's okay. We are standing on the root of creative energy. Confusion enters in and fractures our clarity, that's all right. We're standing in love, we can return to clear mind. When we're in the heart, we are right here all the time. That's equanimity. The Buddhist perspective on equanimity is to accept reality as it is without craving or aversion, without aversion to that reality. It just, it just is. We don't have to be good with it, we just have to be with it. It's a tall order. It is the tallest order ever in the history of humanity. It has never been more difficult to accept what is. That's presence. That's love. If we can't find a way to return to love now, it will get harder and harder to get back to it. Equanimity, 
being able to be with what is transforms what is on the way to us. That's the power of now. And the now is always pulsating with love, with godness, with life force. When we root into that love, when we make it the center of everything we do, we are allowing spirit to flood us, to inform us, to guide us, and spirit will always guide us to joy. Our best chance of a beautiful ideal is rooting into love right now and doing what life guides us to do. And the capacity to do that is the result of awakening to suffering. We were in the hard spot. We woke up to it. We examined how it happened, how it came to be, what exacerbated that pain. And we chose love. We chose to connect to higher guidance to show us our way out of that suffering. And that becomes our job, to stay connected to higher guidance. And that is how we make the experience change us. So why do some of us fall back asleep after a profound awakening And even after a lot of habits and behaviors changing, it's got everything to do with making a vow. Making a vow in that moment of pain. And every vow requires devotion. This is all about devotion. May this passage gracefully lead us to one love. Almost everybody I'm talking to right now is deeply concerned that we will not change as a result of this experience. So I have to meet that concern within myself. Am I concerned that I will not change as a result of this experience? I've got to let my own self-doubt push up against my, my faith, my confidence in my capacity, my desire to love my confidence in God. And I come around every day to, we can do this. We can wake up. We can change as a result of this experience. We can, we can, we can. And when you're in, in doubt and you want to create something more luminous, something that's going to eclipse that doubt, even prove that doubt wrong, it's really useful to look back to history to get some perspective and some hope. You have to look at both your own personal history, what you have overcome individually, and our collective trials, the big tests of humanity. And you find reference points in that for creating a new life, new everyday lives, a new world. To find those reference points, to mine for hope, you have got to remember the past clearly. Again, you have to examine the personal and collective suffering. And then you have to honor the hell that you and we all went through together in order to grow. So with respect to honoring the hell that humanity has been through, I have been looking into the great flu of 1918. So who here before this pandemic situation had even heard of the great flu of 1918? Yeah? You did? Because I never heard of it. Thankfully, there is an English author named Mark Honigsbaum who wrote, Living with Enza, 
The Forgotten Story of Britain and the Great Flu Pandemic of 1918. It's coming in really handy right now. Here's a short story. Between the spring of 1918 and the winter of 1919, the Spanish influenza happened. Now, it's called the Spanish influenza because Spain was the first country to acknowledge that this illness was spreading amongst them. And then it went on to sweep across the globe. No one was free of this. The flu went on to kill an estimated 50 to 100 million people. That's just 100 years ago. Now, let's press pause here for a second and just get down with the data. There's a wide girth between 50 and 100 million people. So that's really important to keep in mind as we navigate our way through the scenario that we're in, which is to say, we're never going to really know how many people this affects. Well, let's go back to what Mark Honigsbaum was researching here. He came across a really curious fact that there are actually no memorials to the Great Flu of 18. We have war memorials for wars that have not killed as many people. Here's some perspective, some context. 75 million people died in World War II, but the flu of 1918 killed around 50 to 100 million people. No memorials, no statues, no great walls etched with the names of the people who passed away. Why is that? We have memorials for everybody who was fatalized by AIDS. There are memorials for Ebola in Africa. The Spanish flu was a pandemic that spread across the planet, much like this pandemic that we were in. Why no memorials? Because there was no one particular group for anybody to rise up on behalf of. It's almost as if the concern became diluted because it affected everybody. So how does this translate to learning from our own personal pain, from our own dark nights of the soul? In a really twisted way, this pandemic is inclusive and therefore unifying. But when something is this global and far-reaching like the Spanish flu was, how is it that we don't memorialize it, that we forget? How do we forget our own pain and our own dark nights of the soul? How is it that we lose touch with those passages and we fall back asleep? I think we're so busy pushing through life that we don't memorialize our own personal pain. Yet we cling to it. We turn it into an emotional affliction. We do it all the time. But to examine our suffering and then to celebrate it as the initiation that it was, we don't do it. We're so busy, we've lost touch with our own rites of passage. We are failing to see the beauty in our own pain. And we do not demarcate it as sacred. So we just deflect its gifts. We're obsessed with keeping on, keeping on. We miss the point. And then we aren't changed by it. And we certainly do not look back to our past pain for points of direction. We forget how we suffered. We want to avoid the suffering and we just keep going. We lose touch with our own suffering and our global suffering at our peril. What happens is we fail on an individual level to turn our pain into wisdom. And on a worldwide scale, when we do not learn from our past, 
our systems become grossly unprepared. We sleepwalk. We live in denial. We can't imagine the unimaginable. I mean, the scale of 50 to 100 million people dying. It's unimaginable. We find it hard to conceive of, so we don't. Because it's terrifying to conceive of, so we don't talk about it anymore. We don't stretch out our limits of perception, and we stay naive. We stay uninformed and therefore unprepared. We just keep to our comforts and our current desires for even more comfort. We deny our suffering, and we keep consuming. We deny the suffering of populations, and we keep building systems based on greed. So how do we bring this macro to the micro? I've had to look at my own memory of suffering, my own initiation, the things I've talked about in this podcast, my own living death. And what I noticed is that in trying to recall my darkest days, my own crumbling, my dissolutions, and trying to unearth those details to have this conversation with you, I had to really stretch. And that's kind of crazy. I had to think that hard about the most painful, impactful, and change-inducing passage of my life. But it's true. I had to piece together the details of my own living death. I had to open my own journals and recall that dark night with some detail. I had to rethink. I look back and I was amazed at what a mess I was. From where I am today, it's unimaginable. I took my own initiation for granted to some regard, gotten a little sleepier. I took my resurrection for granted. I forgot on my best days when I'm planning for the future. I can forget what it was like to have begged for mercy. Maybe some of us never beg for mercy, but you know what? Now would be a really good time to offer mercy to ourselves and to each other. And when you do that, you see that the mercy was always there. Mercy is defined as the compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within our power to punish or to harm. Think about all the ways that you punish yourself. How you withhold love from yourself how you prevent yourself from dreaming of a beautiful ideal for your own life. Think about how you punish your relatives. Keep things from your fellow humans. The superiority and inferiority complex that we all run through our psyches. We degrade our own dreams, our own worth, each other and the cows, and the chickens, and the dogs, and the lakes, and the lands, and the skies. The scale of the punishing is almost unimaginable. But if we stop, if we pause, we can see it all. We can see all that sorrow that's ever been, that is now. And we can see the beautiful ideal in the twinkling of an eye. So this isn't about letting this change us. There is nothing 
passive about this transformation. Each of us has to make this change us. We have to seize this opportunity. We have to alchemize it. We have to use it. Transformation happens through presence. We have to be so right here, right now, not waiting to get back to things, not even waiting to get through this. That would just be a holding pattern of mediocrity. Waiting is on the outskirts of presence. When we can be present to everything that's here, our distractions and our reasons for distractions, our creativity and our brilliance, all those limits we've put up to our love and the vastness of our love, when we can just be right here and embrace our suffering, hold our trauma, and open ourselves up to the divine, to feel that seed of possibility that is in ourselves, it's pulsing, it's beating. When we can be present to everything that's here, within and without, that is grace. And when Grace looks to the future that she wants, a future that is being born of our suffering and of our awakening to joy, you know what Grace does? She seizes that moment and she makes a vow. The people that are truly transformed from suffering, they avow in that moment to live differently. And we must make a vow to a beautiful ideal and devote our lives to it. That's what we do at a wedding. That's what we do on our deathbeds. We stand in love, and we look ahead, and we promise to make good on the vision. And this is a vividly sacred time to avow to a new life. We have to come into ceremony with this global suffering. Approach it as a sacred passage to higher consciousness. We submit our fears onto this altar of change and we vow to love. And that's only half the journey. Vows are only as strong as our devotion. It's not resolutions that work. It's devotion that works. And this is the most potent time of our existence to make a vow. A vow made in the eye of a storm. A promise made at a threshold those vows are imbued with divine power. Those promises are concentrated with extra potential. This is where we commit to life and we carry it out. The ceremony is underway. We just need to participate. This energy is bigger than each of us, but there is nothing passive about this transformation. Each of us has to make this change. We are here to alchemize the denial of suffering into inclusive love. When I was in my own dark days, I had my shrink on speed dial. And as the pain was starting to dissolve and the fever was subsiding, I remember one particular session where I said to my shrink that I was going to miss my suffering that I was going to miss hell. <laughs> and of course we had a good laugh. But what was becoming clear to me that I had never been so alive. Things had never been so vivid. I had never reached with such 
happy strain with such diligence for life, for God, for spirit, so constantly. But here's the thing. In that hell, I vowed that I would never go back. I would never go back to that fracture, to that loneliness, to that darkness, to that anxiety. I would never go back to standing on the other side of my suffering where I was blind to possibilities. And when I made that vow to never return to that density, I laid down these rails of faith. Faith that I could continue to return to joy every day. And I doubled down on my devotions to practices for love. Hey, hey, I just want to tell you a few things about my day planner collection. Maybe that you didn't know. Did you know that we plant one tree for every purchase? Uh, In the new 2021 collection, we've got a whole new list of feast days and holy days. They're all listed really inclusive and beautiful. We've got prompts, weekly or daily, on what's not working and what you want to stop doing. Because what you stop doing is sometimes even more than what you plan to start doing. And we start every single month with a mantra, an affirmation, or a prayer. Three gorgeous new covers, an undated version, daily or weekly, style is up to you. Head to thedesiremap.com slash planners. Thedesiremap.com slash planners. And P.S. Everything is on a pay-what-you-choose basis. So cool. See you there. Devotion is deep loyalty. Devotion is surrendering the interests of the smaller self for a higher principle. Devotion is true love. So where the smaller self is driven to negotiate for the love that it craves, the higher self gets into alignment with the greater good. If we are consistently devoted We are dissolving our lower vibration behaviors. All that stuff, the obsession with status and appearances, excessive accumulation, convenience over right action starts to dissolve. That steadiness of devotion can seem restrictive when you look at it from the outside, and the ego is going to resist devotion. It's going to make you wrestle with it. But devotion to something greater than ourselves, it's the ultimate liberation. It frees us from so much illusion and all that efforting that leads nowhere. That just creates disaster for us. Now, devotion isn't insurance against suffering. You can just ask any monk or any devoted parent. But when you are living in that zone of pure intention, you're going to have access to more coping tools for when the suffering arises. So this is how I do the math of devotion. When I was like kind of devoted to God, I was sometimes kind of joyful. I had some resources to deal with pain. But as I deepen my devotion 
to higher love as a result of my suffering and the desires of my soul, uh, I experience deeper, more perpetual joy. So kind of devoted, you get kind of happy. Deeply devoted, oh, joy. And I still wrestle with my devotion. I still wager with the infinite. I still carry these impressions that have been placed into my psyche from my Catholic upbringing of a punitive God. And I have to actively work on dissolving those images. And the, the medicine, the tincture for that fear of being punished, it's faith. Faith that I will be guided and cared for in all ways. Guided and cared for in all ways. But the most, I think, the most powerful kind of thrust to my spiritual fulfillment has come from deeper self-honesty, from doing the shadow work and celebrating my glory. And now if my devotion to God, to spirit, even just to something meaningful, if I ever doubt that there's a purpose to anything, I just talk to God about it. It ends up being very efficient and very <laughs> assuring. Just like I'm in a relationship and I bring shit up. It's like, dear life, I'm kind of having a hard time believing that this has any value right now. There's a meaning for this. So yeah, I just talk to God about it. So there's a quality of humility to devotion that I haven't had before. And I think when you're honoring the higher power, you can leave lots of room for mystery and simply not knowing because it's all upward, right? And that vastness, this is where the modesty comes in, that vastness of something greater than us is so humbling. So we offer our adoration and our commitment to life from this place of love that we're going to care for ourselves because we love ourselves. We're going to look after each other. We're going to do the right thing on behalf of love. And that love, that pure love, requires nothing in return. So I want what's best for you. I want you to succeed. I want you to be well. I'm going to do what it takes to support your wellness, and I'm good. I mean, that's me on a good day, right? So we will vote on behalf of the collective. We will purchase and take action and volunteer and design our lives on behalf of living in harmony with the earth. We're just going to do it because it's the right thing to do. And that flow, so joyful. And that flow of love, that fluidity of doing the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing, it creates a magnetic quality in your life. You magnetize to you more love and abundance. So the next logical question is, how do we be devoted? How do we embody devotion? I think the answer is simple and universal and eternal. To give is to receive. We just give of our loving. 
And sometimes that's going to mean we're going to pass up our personal desires and preferences for the greater cause, for the bigger love. We offer up our smaller wants. This is an easy example. We give up sleep and time and our money for a child or for an ailing loved one. But it doesn't feel like a giving up. We are giving of our loving. We receive so much in that. We give up the convenience of plastic containers for Mother Earth. There's so many so-called conveniences we need to give up for the planet. We might give up a free weekend to volunteer. Brings us joy, satisfaction. Might not always bring us happiness, but it brings us meaningfulness. The joy is in that. All those choices, whether it's don't buy the water in the plastic bottle or it's stay up late or it's make the donation or cut your neighbor's grass. Those are all inclusive, considerate choices flowing from love. What does that mean? It means we do that naturally. Love, inclusiveness, consideration, it's in our very nature. When we're aligned with our hearts, it's easy to give. So devotion Lofty concept, most days, devotion actually is not about striving. This is really great news. Really want to get this one across. I really took a long time coming to this as a recovered Catholic and a a terrified New Ager. Devotion is not about enduring. And it's definitely not about earning divine favor. It's not about generating good karma or getting access into the heavens. It's crucial to understand this. Devotion is about tuning into the ever-present energies of the heart space. You want to be devoted? Be a good guy. We live from the heart center, and then we just tend to what's in the heart. We water the seeds of love. We honor the virtues of the heart space. And that heart space is vast. The heart is beauty. So what that means is that by devoting ourselves to higher love, we are cultivating the vast beauty of life. So let's, let's just pause with that one for a second. I'm going to say this in a different way. We incarnate in order to cultivate vast beauty. Oh, I love that. (laughs) And what happens when you nurture your vast beauty? You heal. And we all heal. We all expand in beautiful ways. This is the beautiful ideal. So what do you devote to? If it's true, and it's true, That devotion is just to be in love, to let love flow. Where do we direct that? We can adore somebody else, and that's a good thing. Devotion, adoration, reverence. We can offer that externally to another person. This is what we do when we feel connected to someone, when we're in love, when we have children, when we devote to a great being. Even more ideally, we can be operating from that more impersonal space where our devotion is more encompassing. So um, we're rooted into the heart and we are just loving on life. We're not overly attached to a person, to something in a human form. 
we're just devoted to loving existence. So it's the difference between loving a person, and we might lose that person eventually, different circumstances, versus we are loving the love that flows through us toward that person. Let me say that in a different way. Let's say I'm devoted to my child, which I am. I act in a loving way to him. I give him love. Yeah, that's one form of devotion. A greater, more impersonal, but all-embracing way of devotion is that I am devoted to the love that I'm giving him. I love the love that comes through me. And oh, it's in his direction. I love the love that comes through me and I give to the garden. I love the love that comes through me and I pour it into my community. I love the love that I can pour into the podcast. Whatever it is, I just love the love. It's the euphoria. It's the high. It's the high of devotion. Devotion leads to surrender. You just fall in love. It's not a forced surrender. It's very fluid. It's the ability to recognize the vaster purpose of life. When we devote to higher love, we become profoundly generous. It's got nothing to do with self-centered giving. We're not asking, how does this serve me as I give? There's no question about what we're going to get back from our devotion. And I think it's that kind of generosity, that depth of devotion, just loving for the sake of love, that clears out karma, really heavy karma. So where do we start with devotion? We start at the top. How do you get devoted to higher love? You, you aim for higher love. So we commit ourselves to the values of the heart space, love, compassion, joy, beauty, gentleness, and inclusiveness. We live heart-centered lives, and we commit to taking every route possible back to our heart center when we get out of it. We reflect, we contemplate, we meditate, we dance, we make art, we bask in nature, we're warm, we're friendly, we do the yoga, we do the meditation, we do the rituals. We enter into ceremony with the current suffering and the eternal joy. We all have the free will to do this. And our devotion will take on specific expressions according to the shape of our soul. So we can make one ideal or a singular purpose, the object of our reverence, of our devotion. We can commit ourselves to loving kindness or protecting animals or cleaning up the beaches. We can, we can declare that we are going to employ people to make delightful things. We can commit to just knowing our neighbors, to empowering women everywhere, rocking the vote, healing land masses, healing communities, healing each other. And here's the thing. When we give our lives to higher love, we will feel profoundly held in all ways. The craving is fulfilled. To give is to receive. It's beautiful. It's ideal. Nobody 
can predict the future. We can prophesize it. We can get glimpses of it. But no one knows because free will, because mystery, because possibility, because you and me. And no one can take your pain from you. People can help comfort you and guide you through your suffering. They can give you pieces of love. They can give you ample love. But your pain is uniquely yours, as is your joy. You can only be guided by your own will. And that's a beautiful, terrifying reality for most of us. We are not going to come out of this spiritually starved. We are going to come out of this deeply resourced into our hearts and our spirits. Our consciousness is expanding now and it is going to amaze us. I don't think we're going to be rabid or revengeful. I think we are going to be overflowing with our resilience and our strength and this strange, gorgeous delight in how little we need, how little we've ever needed, and how wealthy we are in love, in resources, in joy. We are freeing ourselves of so much that has been holding us back from real happiness. We are going to heal our way through this. We're going to be dancing with mystery. And you know what? A lot is going to be unanswered. In my think tank days, when we all rallied around Y2K, everybody thought the world was going to end the stroke of midnight in the year 2000 because computers hadn't been programmed to flip over their digits to be 2000. And the fear was that traffic lights were going to stop and generators wouldn't work and the world was going to crash. And as we all know, when the clock struck 12, didn't happen. The world continued on, but a lot of massive mobilization happened before January 1st. So we'll never know the whole story about Y2K, and we'll never know the whole story about this pandemic. It's not going to matter. We need to busy ourselves with building a new world. This is the time for faith. The time for faith is when we are in doubt. The time for light is when we're in the dark. The time for love is when we are indifferent and confused. That's the pressure that creates diamonds. This is the alchemy. We're going to burn out fear when we are most terrified. This is when we transform our fear into fortitude. So with respect to this world health situation, what's the one thing that you're most afraid of? What's this been kicking up for you? Whatever it is, it's probably been a fear that's been nestled into your psyche for a long time. You've been dancing with it for a while. So I've lived with the fear for almost two decades of my lungs, of my respiratory system, that I would get on the plane and I would get sick, that I would get sick before the gig, that I'd have a bronchial respiratory incident, that I'd get worn down if I did too much work. Yeah, I've been, I've been afraid for my lungs for quite a long time. So this would be the perfect time to be more terrified than ever. 
And I have decided to not be, to really confront it. So out of love for myself, because I want to live and I want to give, I'm mindful, I'm precautionary, I'm taking greater care of my respiratory system and my immune system and my whole body than ever, because I want to live more than ever. I'm doubling down on my love. And in doing that, I'm experiencing my fear of getting sick dissolving. And that's my holy instant that I am deciding to choose love. So I'm going to live. I'm going to struggle. I'm going to live and then I might die and I'll live and I might struggle some more and I'll live and I might die a little more. But God's got me either way. I am choosing to practice faith in tribulation. That's the leap. That's the leap to the new ground. And we've got to make it. If we don't hold an image of the beautiful ideal in our hearts and live towards that, choose the faith over the fear, then we could get swallowed by all the systems that are crumbling. This is the time to leap, to leap into beautiful idealism, into our future wisdom, into our latent mastery. It's a time to be the light in the darkness. It's the time of miracles. Miracles happen when we realize our innate centeredness. Our innate centeredness. When we are centered within the center of ourselves. That portal to God. That's the high center. We stand in our divinity. We become the stuff of miracles. And that is what leads to health, to well-being, to deep rest, to harmony on all levels. Those miracles happen all the time, every day, everywhere. Convicts turn into healers. The suicidal decide to live, and they speak of life. We get found. We spontaneously heal. We wake up and live differently. We move from isolation to unity. The twinkle of an eye, Lazarus lives everywhere. Miracles are the giving of love. We are made of the stuff of love, and that means that miracles are natural. Miracles return things to their right order. And on the other side of the miracle, we choose to do better. We make better. And it only gets better together. <sighs> These aren't easy times, but they are our times. And if I know anything, I know that resistance to what is only creates suffering. So we heed the pause, we feel the feelings, we face the fear, we dig deep. We do this together. We're going within to bring forth the virtues that we need to heal. It's all inside. We are becoming the possibility that is in our DNA. We are going to extend our life force. We're going to live from the heart. That's the courage that's required. And in this, we will exalt Mother Nature. We will honor and be honored. Right now, we are practicing faith in tribulation, and it is unifying us. So let's talk about unity and getting it together, together.
All right, it's time for a grace moment. Three steps, you should know them by now, right? Be still, receive, respond. You can do this anytime, all the time. Please, if you get anything out of this, just take this with you. Here we go. If you're able, close your eyes, breathe into your heart center, move into stillness. Your breathing is natural. You're focusing on your heart chakra. Now move into receiving. You receive the energy that is in your heart. You receive the awareness of higher love. You're receiving the focus of presence. Your breathing is natural. And then you receive guidance from your heart. A message, a word, a thought, just the feeling itself, just receive the feeling. And then you engage, you respond to that heart energy. You give your heart space more breathing, a deeper breath. You choose a nourishing thought. Or you respond with gratitude, with appreciation to your higher love, to the higher love. Take a full breath, full beautiful breath into your beautiful heart space and we are back to this beautiful moment. We're living in the age of Aquarius. It's not a 60s soundtrack. It's like it's a real thing. Uh, it's a 2100 year era. And like whether astrology and cosmic eras are like your jam or not, we do know that these are massively disruptive and promising times. Now, the the characteristics of the age of Aquarius is that it's all about falsehoods falling. And mystics believe that this era is when the truth shall dawn. How exciting is that? Mm, helps me be happier to be alive right now. The structures are falling apart. The falsehoods are flailing to stay alive. And I think they are being toppled by love. If you are here right now on the planet, you are here to design a new world. It's going to look great on a job resume. You know the Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. These are them. And I have I have questioned a few times uh, my wisdom of incarnating during such shitty circumstances. I've even thought like, God, if I was born in the 50s, I mean, there was all kinds of oppression and repression, but, uh, but I'm here. <laughs> I was talking to a friend not that long ago about the Amazon being on forest, the lung of the planet. And we were talking about the complexities of the Amazon burning. Little did we know at the time that Australia was next. And we're talking about drinking water in Flint, Michigan. Not that it's drinkable. And Gunnar piped in and said, isn't this an incredible time to be alive? He was like so passionate. And there was so much pleasure in his voice. And I... It, caused me to pause and I was like, yeah, I'm going to turn my resentment into 
excitement. Even if it isn't an incredible time to be alive, I chose this and I'm going to trust my choice. And I'm going to trust that I was chosen to be here. And I'm going to get really clear on what my role is. So that's the question. What will your role be in our creation story? Here's a good place to start. This is from Bahulala, who's the founder of the Baha'i Faith, which, you know, I'm I'm not a big fan of organized religion, but if I had to sign up for something, Baha'i would work for me. Anyway, here's what Bahulala has to say. Let your vision be world-embracing rather than confined to your own self. I'll put that in my way. How about enough with the singular-focused vision boards And let's just blow those boards up to include other people's happiness. Everything that we are craving, think of something that you want right now. Think of uh, how you want to feel. Consider what it is that you've been craving long term, like in terms of, you know, existing, yeah? All of that, everything that you desire, exists in being of service. You give, you will receive. It all comes from the giving. The passion, the joy, the peace, the ease, the happiness. It's all through serving. The fulfillment is there, the purpose is there, and joy exists within the purpose. While we're talking about joy, can I just say, fuck the new normal. Exceptional times call for exceptional changes, and some of the actions required of us right now are not behaviors that I want to bring forward into my ideal future. What I really want to do, what I'm looking forward to doing, is someday getting on a plane. I'm going to Italy, I'm going to eat some pasta, and I'm going to make out with somebody awesome. Yeah, so fuck new normal. The reality I want to live in is on the far edges of what is necessary right now of this restriction. I'm, it's, I'm not doing it out of oppression. I'm doing it with choice for wellness. But in this time of beautiful, brutal, galvanizing changes, I am only bringing forward with me the stuff that is useful, the stuff of this that is life-affirming. Yeah, Do not normalize the difficulties of this day because we do not want them to become our future. We cannot normalize fear and feelings of oppression. We have to dig deeper to get into the extraordinary within us. Our hearts have a very clear vision of what joy and unity and sanity and sovereignty look like. And now's the time to reach into that that vision that lives in our DNA and to create the future from there. Fuck new normal. May this passage gracefully lead us to one love. Pause for a poem. Spirituality is dancing with uncertainty and presence. We are devotees becoming a planetary chorus to rise. The beautiful ideal that we can give rise to, what's it look like? What's a heart-centered society look like? How do you create a well and loving politics? Correct vision comes from the heart. 
So we begin building the new world. All manifesting has to come from that heart-centered place. The vision arises from a deep love of being interconnected. We have to love being united. You got to dig togetherness. You got to dig community on every possible scale. And that's where fusion happens. That, that, that love of other is where we fuse ourselves to the power of life. It's about strategies of compassion and strategies of joy. A heart-centered vision for the future benefits the whole collective. Heart-centered visions do not come from the ego. Ego-centered plans come from the subconscious. They come from the shadow, which means they're coming from a place of lacking. It means that those visions, those plans, those strategies will always be trying to prove something. And when you are trying to prove your rightness, ultimately you're going to create division. Division with yourself. You're not going to hear your own wisdom and you will create more division with the people around you. Ego-based dreams are typically about needing to achieve something in order to feel worthy. We got to be done with that. What kind of dreams do we need to dream now? Heart-centered dreams. Heart-centered visions hold up virtues of the heart. Higher values, values that uplift everybody involved. Everybody's in. Everybody gets love. Everybody's wisdom is accounted for. There's abundance for everybody. Generosity is the through line. Everybody gets healing. There's a joy that ripples out from the vision and includes everybody. The vision is interdependent. It's a plan to unify. And you need faith to make that kind of plan real. So let's talk about visioning for a second. Think about the best possible outcome of this situation. You got it? You see it, you sense it, you hear it, you can smell it. Really move in to the imagery. Where are you? Who are you with? What's the quality of the light and air? The sounds that you hear? So as you're seeing this, your sensory nature is very active and alive. You're feeling it. You have to feel it. You're impressing it upon yourselves. And as you're seeing this vision, breathe into your heart center. If you really want to pump this up, we can bring in some color to bring it alive. So infuse some colors into your heart space where this vision is undulating with life. Bring in light pinks, translucent golds, and some white ribbons of light. All right, so you've got your vision of the best possible outcome. Sensing it, feeling it, we've added some color. And then release that vision into the sky. Just send it up, up, upward into the ethers, into pure space until it fully disappears from your sight. You take a breath. And now... Let your faith handle it for you. That's it. You did your work. Let life take it from here. You don't need to obsess about it all day. You just focus on your faith, on purifying and bolstering your faith. 
And in addition to faith, gratitude. You give thanks to all beings, seen and unseen, who are helping you manifest your vision of the best possible outcome of this situation into reality. Again, faith is believing that the light exists, even when it's dark. But faith alone isn't enough. So you have to meet life, the creation, with some action in this dimension. Faith on its own, useless. Faith requires care and feeding, and you hook it to some actionables. So you can think of faith as the blueprint of what you want to build. It's a track that you lay down in the atmosphere, in the substratum. And that vision sits on top of those tracks of faith. So the vision grows through that blueprint. And the work involved is the building on that blueprint of faith. And it's the work of the inner world within you and your outer devotion, your action. So you keep your heart and your mind and your body clean and clear, right? Good, diligent thinking. You stay well and you stay vitalized. You stay faithful. You keep removing the obstacles to love, all the illusions that tell you you are not worthy, that these visions cannot be made manifest. You remove your doubts by putting your energy into your faith. And then you let your love flow into the world. You purify and give, purify and give, devote and receive, devote and receive and repeat. And that's the work. That's the diligence of thought and a commitment to virtues of the heart that then brings your vision to life. As you can imagine, I've been talking to a lot of people lately about death. <laughs> I'm such a good time. Friends are calling me from that I haven't talked to in months. And they're just like, how's it going? And I'm like, oh, I'm riding the wave. I'm thinking a lot about planning for death. It made a lot of sense to have a conversation with Dr. Zach Bush about dying and rebirth. And he shared with me the most luminous statistic ever. That out of the patient's he treated in a hospice, so going to die, 15% of them left hospice alive and willing to live. And what he attributed that to was that those patients got off all of their medication that was not related to managing their pain. So they got off the diabetes meds and the kidney stuff and the hormone stuff and all the other stuff and just took what they needed to take to remain comfortable. And they decided to live, and live they did. That's the miracle that can happen when we devote to life. But that vivacious choice usually requires that we are stripped down and brought to the deathbed. I'm going to quote biblical John from chapter 12, verse 24, unless the single grain of wheat loses its shell, it remains just a single grain. We die to a greater life that includes each other, a new life. This is a new era, and it is requiring us to be grace, to embrace and embody 
the qualitative consciousness of the divine feminine in all its fullness. And from that, we have crystal clear seeing. We are receptive. We are open and engaged and responsive. This is what it is to live from the realm of the radiant mind. And in order to merge, to fuse, to embody those divine feminine energies, we have to move away from old patriarchal ways of thinking and acting. How do we move away from them? How do we do this? We invoke the mother. We just ask for guidance from the source itself. We ask for guidance. It's okay to ask for strength. She's waiting for us to ask for her strength to be poured into us. We ask the mother. We ask all the higher ones, the infinite, so that we can dissolve and shed these old now malfunctioning ways of being and move into the new era. Inside that husk that's around that wheat that is spoken of, inside there is our greater, more loving selves. And we peel back those layers and we live from our hearts. And what happens? Synchronicities, so-called synchronicities, they happen everywhere and your people start to show up and you will be stronger than ever. And from that strength flows happiness. We get to be happy. Hey, I have a question for you. Just jumping in to ask, do you know that there is an ebook that goes with this podcast series, Grace for Impact? And the ebook is Pay What You Wish. I've got every reflective practice within this book. So it's the Cosmic Enchilada, a catalog of the healing practices, all of the prayers, the breath work. You can do it anytime on your own time. Print it out, read it on your Kindle. There's links to all of the meditations and the interviews that I reference. And the extra extra is that there's an extended version of all of the reflective writing questions that I ask you in the podcast. It's beautiful. It was the book I was planning to write in a couple years from now, but here it is now, maybe when we need it most. Head to daniellelaporte.com slash grace. Macro to the micro. I made you a list of what's been changing in my life as a result of the world situation. Number one, aforementioned, all's forgiven, pretty much. Doesn't mean that people don't still bug the shit out of me. It means that I have more room in my heart for the people that bug the shit out of me. But generally, everybody's off the hook, and so am I. Wow, finally. I'm asking for guidance more often than I ever have, and I am more aware of how higher guidance is coming to me. I've always believed that the higher guidance came to me in the form of that still, small voice, but now I know that that's how it comes to me. I'm trusting my ideas and my impulses and my desires, and what I desire is shifting. It's moving so much closer to something that resembles simplicity. And that simplicity that I see in the very near future is God, it's more appealing than it's ever been. Like I used to think it was just so 
boring and banal and dry and drained and unexciting. And now it looks lush. Simplicity looks elegant and classy and all kinds of full and beautiful. Yeah, who knew? Very clearly emerging for me is a new way of doing business. So I'm really excited about moving to a pay-what-you-wish model for all my digital stuff, my books, my meditations, my prayers, my courses, all of that. I've been wanting to do it for years, didn't have the courage to push that change through, and now I'm I'm, nu- I'm letting the mother nudge me into pay-what-you-wish. It's super exciting. And there's a new level of letting go of lightening up in terms of ambition. I mean, at this point, we're just like, goals? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I've had a contentious relationship with goal setting for like 20 years now. And now I just, I'm like so over it. Vision, yes. Vision more heart-centered, more loving, more luminous, more far-reaching than ever. Goals could not give a shit. What else is changing? Uh, Let me bring in some E.B. White for you. Because this quote sums up the tension that I have coexisted with for most of my life. I arise in the morning, torn between a desire to improve the world and a desire to enjoy the world. This makes it hard to plan the day. Yeah, I know. That's my life. I am paring it down. So just as intensely, more intensely than ever, because I want to live more fully than ever, my desire to improve the world it's, it's fully alive, and my desire to enjoy the world still there. Yeah, so I am joyfully resolved to living with that tension. What I'm doing is I'm paring down all the other stuff around those tensions. So basically, it's like this. If an idea, a project, an opportunity comes my way that is not about improving the world or enjoying the world, then it's a no. So nothing is making it on the list anymore to impress, to gain, or to control. It's either for service or for enjoyment. And ideally, I'm just serving with joy all the time. My favorite double entendre. Next on the list, in various states of prayer, reflection, sweat, and frustration, I've held up each one of my visions that I have been working on in a meditative way for a number of years, like the stuff that's on my vision, I don't really have a vision board, but like my internal vision board, the dreams and intentions that I have been watering with attention, I held all of those up to the light to see if they were still appropriate, if they were still manifestable. And I'm happy to report that the answer is yes that what I've been dreaming of is still aligned, I think, with higher love and my soul. It's what I'm designed for this lifetime. But my approach to them is changing. So I still do my meditative work with those visions on a fairly regular basis. But there's less pleading. I'm more relaxed and I'm more... I feel more joyful in my, in my prayer state these days. I find that so moving, actually. 
I think, you know, everything I'm shedding is giving way to a celebration of my worth, not a question of it. I'm just, I'm honoring my worth, and that makes prayer so much more fun. Yeah. One of the bigger shifts that is just starting to come into play is I'm making my home a real home. So I'm not giving in anymore to the notion that all my dreams are out there, that the relationship is out there, that the career is out there, that I have to travel for this and attain for that and go get that, and and I won't have time for this, and mm-mm. I'm going to plant my garden. I'm going to really celebrate the city that I live in, the body that I have, the friends that I adore, and from that deep belonging, oh, so many good things are already on the way. I'm journaling more. I'm, I haven't been a journaler historically. I keep like copious notes of ideas and stuff I want to make and give and like insights, but I've never been like a dear diary kind of person. But I've started to write after my meditations and not and and even the writing itself has shifted so rather than writing from a place of upward inquiry like guide me tell me i'm writing more as a conversation with my heart and my higher self oh it's like super nourishing speaking of nourishment i love cooking i just have to double check and check myself is that really true uh yes <laughs> It's a fucking miracle. <laughs> this passage is all about miracles. That's one of them. Yeah, just, it's the simplicity. It's the sensuality. It's the maximizing what I have. I just feel so useful. Yeah, it's going to last. It's going to last. Uh, I'm, we're planting things in little pots, and I am going to overhaul my small property. I have a front yard and a backyard. And as much as I love the tulips, I think it's time for cauliflower, etc. Victory gardens for the win. I've also reached out to some friends, neighborhood friends that I adore. And I've been texting them things like, seriously, lettuce. (laughs) Seriously, let's get on the broccoli. And I'm going for it. And I just, I want to have bumper crops in my little backyard or something. And then I see myself walking down the street, sharing it with my neighbors. And that is going to change the whole wide world. Other things that are changing on the health front, I'm being more diligent with my supplements. Vitamin D take a lot. So, oh, side note here, not giving you medical advice, just sharing with you what works for me personally. And whatever I'm doing, these are the same supplements that I'm giving to my 16-year-old son. Noting that this is a time to be extra loving and diligent about all things immune system and respiration. So vitamin D, I take a lot. Vitamin C, I take a lot. Zinc, I take some every day. Colloidal silver, I use it, I get a spray. I spray it in the back of my throat three, four times a day. Um, I spray it on my hands. I spray it on my face. Love it. 
Google all these things, by the way. Look into Medical Medium, also known as Anthony William. Check out Mark Hyman, H-Y-M-A-N, and Dr. Kathy with a K, Yao, Y-E-O. You can also check out Sarah Godfried. All right, I also take elderberry syrup, and last but not least on this list of immunity and respiration, love, I take NAC. N-A-C stands for N-acetylcysteine. Uh, highly recommend that you do some research on this. So cysteine is found in most high-protein foods. I don't eat meat, so I get my protein from seeds and nuts, etc., where cysteine is and lots of legumes. NAC is known to relieve symptoms of respiratory conditions. It's very antioxidant that helps it be an expector and it breaks down phlegm and mucus in your air passageways. I've seen some people who have been affected directly by the virus really, really struggling to breathe. Um, and they have felt that NAC was really helpful in the healing process. So I've been taking it for a couple of years now. Studies have shown that 600 milligrams of NAC twice a day significantly improved lung function and symptoms with people who had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Okay, now this is the most important thing about these supplements. For me, all of these only work because I manage my stress levels. You can take all the vitamin C and D and zinc, etc., etc., that you want, but it's only going to be optimal if your stress isn't overriding all the good stuff you're putting into your body. So I manage my stress levels with my meditation and prayer and movement and journaling and psychotherapy and very loud music and a great fucking sense of humor. I am closer to God than I've ever been. I feel that right now my the, the beauty, the electricity the nourishment, the fulfillment, the mm, of my relationship with the infinite is the greatest it's been since I went through the hardest time in my life. And in some ways I you know, it's so obvious that I am being spared right now of the depths of suffering that other people are experiencing. I'm, I'm not fighting for my life right now. I have shelter. I have apples on my deck. And I'm with someone I adore. But I am allowing myself to feel this the compression of this passage. And it's just, it's bringing me to life. I'm so, I'm so grateful. What else can I tell you? Back on the work front... I am, well, I'm at my best. Hi, hello, here I am. I hope this is working for you. It's really working for me. I have been in a room for seven days just writing and talking and talking and eating chocolate and allowing myself to just be in reflection creation, reflection creation mode and repeat. It's really allowed me to see my addiction to social media and distraction and I've allowed myself to like just fall more in love with my work yeah I used to have this fantasy of being a novelist <laughs> and it wasn't because I wanted to write novels in fact I think I would just be terrible I would just so suck at fiction it was because I wanted that kind of eccentric 
focused, kind of reclusive life. But there's something about, there's a challenge in the nature of the work I have now, where it's, you know, self-help and urgency and fucking Instagram, and it just can so pull me off center. You know, I've just surrendered to the intensity, and it's helped me focus on what matters most, which is reflect, create, reflect, create, and do yoga, and drink more water. And I'm texting my mom more, and I'm making more jokes with my dad. <sighs> okay, core desired feelings. Wrote a book about it called The Desire Map. And I take my own medicine. So I'm asking myself every day, no matter what's going on, how can I choose feelings that move me in the direction of love, of pleasure, of being of service, heart-centered feelings? My core desired feelings currently are unity, miraculous love, radiant, and joy. It's four core desired feelings. And I use them. I work with them. I bring those feelings into my heart. I ask my heart for a message about what I need to think and do that day to feel those feelings. That works. And I'm doing more breath work. And I have been reading back at some of my, uh, my notebooks. I do keep notes from all of my therapy appointments. I want to memorialize my psychotherapist and my energy healer <laughs> with bronze statues. And I am really honoring the the pain that I have transformed into power. I'm really I'm I'm looking back at all of that and just thinking, wow, initiations. I did it. And I'm gonna give more gonna give more props to my initiations. I'm paying more attention than I ever have to my words and to my thoughts, which is saying a lot because I am a, you know, obsessive word nerd. I hope you've noticed, perhaps you've noticed that if you've been on this journey with me, this this podcast and and the ebook for Grace with Impact, we've been here at this point, I don't know, 7, 8, 9 hours together, and I have not once mentioned the actual name or any variation of the name of this virus that is the pandemic that we're in. I'm not going to invoke it. And I'm using this, obviously, as an occasion to deal with personal, transpersonal, and universal topics. So, And my thoughts. What I've noticed is that if I talk shit about anybody during the day, or if I send anybody some some slag, they show up in my dreams. I don't think it's that person, their actual energy showing up in my dreams. But I think the energy of that negative interaction, that thought action that I had, is showing up in my dream state to be cleansed and shed. Which makes sense, because this is an epic cleansing and shedding. So... It's also showing me the power of my words and my thoughts. So wherever possible, if a negative, I mean, negative thoughts are just part of darkness and shadow and it's all natural. So I'm not trying to control my thoughts in that way. I'm not trying to control my feelings, 
But I am trying to correct wrong thinking when it arises. And by wrong thinking, I mean divisive thinking. I mean the opposite of loving and inclusion. So I can think someone's an asshole and I can have opinions about what someone is doing that is contrary to what they're doing. I can think what someone is doing is wrong. That's called being aware. That's often called discernment. And that is the essence of justice and correction. But I need to see that from a place of love. Yeah, so when the shit comes up, I try and apply love. As for stuff, like physical, material stuff and things... I want fewer things now. I'm spending this time, I'm trying not to fill it up, as I've said, with Netflix and projects, but I do have a basement that I want to make into a guest room. (laughs) And, you know, the apocalyptic thinker in me is like, I need a guest room in case some people need a place to live. Like, I'm thinking, how many people can I house downstairs? Yeah, just throw a little hot plate in there and everybody's good. But I've noticed that I've been pulling out things that I've cherished, my good stuff, and I've been using it more in my everyday, like the beautiful blouse. I've got this gorgeous set of silver spoons, and I'm using them to cook. And yeah, I'm, I'm cherishing what I have more, and I'm so looking forward to shopping less. I'm so looking forward to everything getting this kind of patina of love over the coming years and not from a place of like, you know, we have to use tin cans as telephones because the apocalypse happened, but just cherishing, turning into more cherishing. Relationships as filler are not so much for me uh, relationships as filler, maybe more so any obligatory feelings I have around relationships in my life. I'm I'm letting that go. I, you know, I need to rely on myself for love and self-respect. Being loved and respected by others, oh gosh, it's the bonus. It's nourishment. I would love for that to happen. But I can't worry anymore if you don't respect me because I don't get back to you right away. And um, I can't worry about Staying in touch in order to save face. That's not genuine. Just have to move when I move towards uh, the people in my life who I'm in friendship with and varying degrees of uh, emotional intimacy. So I'm looking at every relationship and seeing how much ego is in it and how much soul. As we've all heard, Evidently, it takes 21 days to change a habit. Three weeks into being in this retreat mode, I noticed that a calm started to set in, that I was feeling the ease of having less stimulation, of running around less, and some of my addictions started to loosen, my primary addiction being my fucking phone. So it's not trivial to say that I've been making great strides in this retreat mode at knocking my phone addiction. Uh, My sleep has been better because I've been putting more effort into quality sleep. And part of that has been not waking up 
and turning my phone on right away and not making turning my phone off the last thing I do before my head hits the pillow. I've been leaving my phone in the kitchen at night, so I gotta walk two flights of stairs down to get it in the morning. So I come down having meditated and said my prayers, having done a few stretches and like ready for the day, and it's making a huge difference. On a business note, we are continuing to plant trees. So we're looking at all of our finances right now. Where do we need to be extra mindful, extra heartful? And where can we, you know, maintain our philanthropic commitments? And we're going to do it across the board. So for example, uh, everybody who becomes a member of our heart-centered membership, we plant a tree for every person and every month that they are a member. And we're going to continue to be planting trees with tree sisters for as long as we can. I want to create many forests with our with our love, our love for oxygen, which leads me to community. So in addition to envisioning and planning to plant more vegetables and share those with my actual neighbors, I did think for a moment, like, should I get involved in local politics? Hell no, never. But I am committed to doing what I can in a really practical way and maybe a further reaching way on the downtown east side of Vancouver. It's the heroin capital of the country and it is squalor and pain like hopefully most of us never have to see or experience. And I've done a bit of work downtown. I've worked with a BC Housing Corporation to just do a little bit of volunteering here and there, but I, it's time for me to just roll up my sleeves and get in the middle of the pain. I'm feeling really called to localize my love. On another business, entrepreneurial, creative note, we have always been putting a percentage of our income aside for charities, and typically... We use our digital products as fundraising vehicles. So we give 50 cents from every meditation or 10% of this, 10% of that. And we usually give it to Eve Ensler's organization, V-Day, which does beautiful work across the globe to end violence against women and girls. We also give money to Charity Water. And we also set some money aside for Tree Sisters. So for example... If you're a member of our heart-centered community, for every month that you're in the membership, we plant a tree with Tree Sisters International. The next way, the new way that we're giving now in light of world events is we're taking the money that we've accrued over the last couple years uh, that has been earmarked for some other charities, and I'm giving every member on the team, there's 17 of us, $100 in their currency to spend locally, to give to their local community in the way that they see fit. I would like to give each member of the team more money to donate as we move forward. I just sort of got to take one step at a time here. We're getting things in order with stimulation packages and mortgage deferrals and loans from the government and all those things so we can weather this. So we're taking it small. But the idea is, I really believe that local governance 
is part of the, the, the emerging light in this tunnel of darkness. And this is a way that we need to return to taking care of ourselves and each other. It's just much more effective, robust, resilient, and fun. So I want to encourage everybody on Team D to find the cause in their community that is closest to their heart, and if they can, to stick with it. So if and when there's more money for us to give, that they continue to give to that cause and build a relationship, an ongoing relationship with that cause. And I've told each of them that the money is theirs to distribute in the way that they feel most called to do that. So if they've got a neighbor who has been on food stamps and has been furloughed and they have kids and that neighbor just needs a hundred bucks to get some canned goods right now, then, then knock yourself out and that's where that money should go. But if there's an organization you want to align with, then let's do that. Also, because I live in Canada and the government so far is doing what I think is an extraordinary job of caring for its citizens, it may get harder to do depending on the severity of global economic fallout and hardship. But right now, uh, the stimulus package is really generous. They are contributing to businesses and people's rent, and it's a beautiful thing. What I've decided to do is I'm going to take advantage, the, my business is going to take advantage of a loan that the government is offering to help people weather the storm. 25% of that loan does not have to be repaid. So for example, my company gets a $40,000 loan. $10,000 of that does not need to be repaid. That's super cool. I'm going to do that. And when we get through this and I see... If we've been able to make ends meet and keep the lights on as a business without anybody taking pay cuts and without having to lay anybody off, then we can use that $10,000 to give back to our communities and to our charities. I'm not going to do anything gougy. I don't need to like dip into the socialist bucket and like get my share. If, if I'm doing well, I'm going to share that wellness that the government is sharing with all of us. Yeah. Easy to say right now. We'll see how crunchy things get. I, I hope we can stay on top of this wave. I still want to see the world. I feel this shifting. I've been asking myself, where am I going to go when it's cool to fly again? And what if it isn't cool to fly again? And I'm okay either way. I mean, that's the big lesson here, right? To be okay, either way. I realize that a lot of the travel I've done has had this kind of like this voraciousness to it, which has been both shadowy and both beautiful. Some of it has been ego traveling, like I wanted to be able to say that I went to Paris. And then you eat it up when you're there, but there's also this franticness with it instead of experiencing it. So I still want to travel but I want to travel for the experience instead of just like another stamp in my passport. And I'm cool. I don't need to see much more of the world. I mean, I've got another 50, maybe 60 years of living in this body. And if it's more localized, I'm really at peace with that. Okay, next thing. Okay, this is going to sound like super trivial. <laughs> But I gave up knitting, even though I never really knit, and even though I never really wanted to knit, and I never have known 
very much how to knit. However, <laughs> here's the whole point of this and why it might matter to you. When I start something, I am so all in. I'm like, I learn how, I learn like two stitches. I think just one stitch, knit and purl. Is that even what it's called? And I started making scarves. And by that, I mean, I made two scarves for friends that they've probably never worn because love does not always translate to perfection. But so I bought all this beautiful wool, reams and reams and balls and balls. And it's been sitting in a big bag with my ambitions to make the world a scarf and everybody in the whole wide world. And it's been sitting there for years. And you know what? I'm never going to do it. And part of this shedding is to just release habits and hobbies that are making me feel guilty, that have been costing me things, that are taking up space, that if I gave the supplies to somebody else, they would be delighted because it's their passion and their skill. And I'm just getting it out of my space. I'm letting myself off the hook. I got other things I want to do with my time. And I can see how some of those hobbies, those crafty things, just part of my neuroses of always being busy and filling up space. Like I would knit and Netflix. Come on, just, you know, Danielle, just watch the movie or just don't, you know, just, just, just chill. (laughs) So in the same vein, I also question, because I'm questioning everything right now, everything is getting held up to the light of these times. Should I be painting? Did I want to free up even more time to read, to meditate, to rest, to walk, to cook, to have conversations with friends that I actually want to talk to? And painting has made the cut. Painting stays. Why? Because in my examination of it, I became really clear. Painting is something that gets me in a really beautiful zone. I stop thinking. I move into that space of no mind, of presence. And I paint without ambition. In fact, my habit, which I consider a bad, healthy habit, is that I actually never finish fucking painting. I do something. I don't like it. I consider it undone. I'm a different person. When I go back to the canvas, I gesso over it. I just paint white over it. I start over again. I've maybe in the dozens and dozens of paintings I've done over the decades, I've given away maybe a half a dozen paintings to friends and they're bad. And they probably just hang them on their walls when I come over to visit. Uh, but I'm going to keep painting. And what I've decided is not only am I going to continue to do it because of the zone, I'm going to paint what I've always wanted to paint, which is just one particular theme in two particular colors. And I'm just going to crank those mothers out and see where it goes. Who knows? I might give it up next year. I'm facing a lot of fears. A really immediate practical fear or impractical fear has been more about losing my son. And by losing my son, I mean that, you know, his dad who I'm split with, his dad will say to me after this is all over, like, you know, you had Harper for all this time and now I want him to come and live with me for his final year of high school. And, oh my God, that would be heartbreaking and tragic, I think, for both myself and my kid. Um, But I just have to be with that fear and go one day at a time and trust that everybody is loved and loving. It's all going to be okay, no matter what happens. Even if even if my kid wanted to be like, yeah, I'm going to go live with dad for a year, I can be with that. I'm concerned about my thyroid 
going out of whack and my estrogen tanking and what if I turn into a fucking crazy lady because of that? I'm just being with that fear just one day at a time. I have all the resources I need right now for wellness and I will continue to be well. But here's what I'm learning in all of this. The more I look at each of those fears through compassion, like it, it comes up, I feel a little crazy, I feel a little potentially panicked. And if, I, if the immediate response can be like, oh, of course you're feeling that way. Ah, oh, and just like love, just love on me for feeling that. Then the fear shrinks. And I'm able to be in the joy of like today. And so those fears, like they're not even whispers. I just, I'm now seeing so many of the fears that have come up in this world situation, the recent fears and the old fears. They're just more like weeds in this incredible garden, this incredible organic garden that is my life. It's so manageable. It's so manageable. And the more loving I get, I just the easier it is. I can actually pluck some of those fears out. And they'll crop up again. I just pluck them out again. Some of them are flowers, actually, if you look really closely. The, the biggest fear <laughs> is it's not about am I going to be able to get enough zinc and vitamin D. It's my fear of annihilation. It's like the deepest it's the deepest of the deep for, for me. Am I going to vanish? Not just am I going to die, like was I ever here? I, just, I drive my, look, existential angst is my specialty. I think about things like um, what will my next incarnation be? Where am I going? What's my assignment going to be in that lifetime? I, I mean, I haven't figured out entirely what my assignment is in this lifetime. <laughs> and I think about eternity. Uh, yeah. I don't know where I am at with that fear, but I'm more present than ever. And it really helps with the whole annihilation shit show. So we can't talk about existential angst without talking about patience. And this is what's been emerging for me. Patience has never been one of my virtues. I haven't even been interested in patience being one of my virtues. I've been proud. <laughs> I've been righteous about my impatience. And it's, it's uh, definitely had a cost. But in my maturity, and by maturity, I mean my depth, not age. And in this beautiful, impactful, high-pressured moment, I'm seeing patients in a different way. And this shift actually feels like a miracle. I used to define patience as frustration. Frustration over being denied what I wanted when I wanted it. Yeah? And that I was supposed to be patient with not getting what I wanted when I wanted it. I see it differently now. I feel it differently. I just put it down and then I flipped it and I reversed it. Patience is the ability to be at ease with the unfolding. Mm. Feels so different in my body, in my heart now. Patience is the ability, I'm working on the ability, to be at ease with what's unfolding. I still get to want what I want, but I can be chill about when it comes on a good day. Yeah. Who knew? 
patience was a virtue. I am letting things just be lovely. Lovely. Lovely is one of my favorite words. I love when men say lovely. (laughs) I find it so melty. I love when I say lovely. I love when anybody says lovely. Lovely is the... It is like love meets prana with some sunlight on it in action, blessing everybody in its way. I'm just letting things be lovely. Mm. Yeah. And you know what? All of the above may dissolve. I don't know, but here's the growth point for me. I am now becoming more okay with not knowing. Yeah. Okay, another important change, or I would say uh, deepening for me, is that I am putting my faith in my friends. Not that I haven't before. I've just decided that's where it should go right now. Because what I've noticed is that if I get too caught up and what I see going on is corruption and exploitation and the dark motives that are happening on a global scale. If I get too caught up in that, it clouds my vision. So it, it's true for me that I think there's a lot of evil play, hard to imagine evil play in this world. But, and it's equally true for me in my perspective, in my lived experience that there is even more light and even more divine power and divine love and divine guidance at play in the world. It's my lived experience. So what's deepening for me is my faith in my lived experience of the people in my life far and wide. I'm turning to my own life as the resource for faith, to my very best friends, to my family, my community leaders. I'm turning to the people I work with for faith, the people that I make things with and I share the stage with and I I do drinks with after gigs and after production shoots. I am looking for faith to the thousands of people I get to connect with, the privilege of connecting with so many people every year, every week online. I'm turning to my own desire map facilitators for faith. I see their light. I see their leadership. I see their beautiful intentions. I am turning to my team. I see their hearts. These are good women. These are good women who believe in humanity. These are good women who are bringing tomatoes to their neighbors and putting positive messages out on social media and being loving with their children and their family. And yeah, I'm putting my faith in the in the healers and the ministers and the preachers and the activists and the writers and the teachers that we are sane, that we are wise. We have been sharing our wisdom and growing our wisdom for decades. I've seen it my whole life. I'm putting my faith in the people who are actively working and willing and voicing and showing up with good, progressive, loving optimism. They are discerning. They know right from wrong. They are smart as fuck. I'm putting my faith in people who use the intelligence of love every day. 
those who have the common sense of taking care of each other and of the earth. They recycle. They give a shit. They're loving. They're kind. And there are millions and millions and millions of heart-centered, good, courageous people who know the difference, who embody the difference between caring and corruption. And they know, we know, we know that we have got this and we have got each other. And that is where I am getting my faith right now. It's getting me through and it's going to carry me on. We have to source our faith in each other and be faithful to our potential to shift on a global scale from self-centered to whole-centered. I'm faithful. I'm faithful. I'm faithful in our potential to shift from self-centered to whole-centered because I know it in the people I love. I'm looking for the light. Let me give you this. Look for it. Look for the light now with more intensity than ever. In all this density and confusion that's swirling on the planet, this is what it means to have faith. Faith that you will keep finding light. Do not waver in your gratitude for what is good and miraculous. Refuse to go numb. And instead, use questions to build your strength. Be strong in the now. You will get angry and you will feel sorrow and some days you are going to be devastated. But on the days when you might fail to be compassionate and at ease, please do not let go of what you know of in your bones. That compassion illuminates the darkness. And if you look with your soul, you will keep finding light everywhere. We're at a choice point. As Buck Minister Fuller, one of my favorite futurists, said, Utopia or oblivion? If we continue to create from our separation anxiety and from our greed, we are in for excruciating pain. As if climate change and moral corruption, addiction epidemics, and a global health pandemic weren't tough enough. Utopia or oblivion, evolution or extinction. We have to, we have to imagine the unimaginable in both directions, divided and unified, suffering or joy, status quo or we take a quantum leap. Status quo, by the way, would be fatal for us. So as idealistic as a free and vibrant future seems from this current maelstrom of fear, idealism is going to be our heroine. Think about this. Feminine principles will design the future that all beings are worthy of. Imagine inclusive, heart-centered leadership joining forces with each other to protect the welfare of all humans. 
Yeah, does it sound like utopia? It is. That's what we want. That's what we deserve. That's what this opportunity is about. That's what we can make. I have faith that we can make that. It's utopian from where we are right now to honor the earth's resources. It's utopian to have inclusive care be the primacy of every policy. It's utopian to believe that we could feed all people. We've got more than enough food to feed every human on this planet. It's utopian to believe that we could actually shelter everybody. Why couldn't we? Why shouldn't we? It's utopian to think that we could heal people and animals. That's where we're going. The feminine principle believes in the power of beauty to nourish the human spirit, to rejuvenate cultures. The feminine principle believes in rehabilitation. And from that ideology of the feminine, the heart, we will form interlocking circles of resources and cultures, local and global, science and spirit. We know this. The divine feminine energy is innate in every human. The energies of deep listening, creative generativeness. The feminine is endlessly creative. Intuitiveness, inclusiveness, receptivity, flexibility, these are the great strengths required now. This is the stuff of innovation. This is the characterization of utopia. Those energies are heart-centered virtues, and it's those virtues that are going to heal the separation anxiety that drives all of our destructive behavior. So where's the masculine come in? Because this is about unification on all levels. We're bringing all of us forward into the future. So the role of the masculine principle in each of us is stewardship. So you've got the feminine, you've got that mother energy, you've got the yin. The yin births the vision and the masculine supports that vision. The masculine principle upholds the heart center. Can you see it? We can see that future with our inner eye. We open our hearts to that, and then we engage our will. And then spirit will come in to energize it and make it so. We're not in this alone. We just have to open our hearts and have the will, and life will help us take it from there. We're here at this moment in human history to awaken to our connectedness. It's neighborly and it is multidimensional. It's new and it's ancient. We're becoming co-creators with universal intelligence. That's why we're here. The mission is inner and outer unification. We have been placed on this ground to bring the holy to the human and the human to the holy. And yeah, it's heavy. And yes, this is a self-created misery, but that misery is in direct proportion with our potential for higher love. In fact, I think our potential for higher love eclipses this shitstorm that we're in. We have got to use this situation as a catapult for a quantum leap into conscious creation. 
There's nothing to fear. And there is everything to gain. And everyone has a place in this future. That's why it works. Because everybody's in. And all of each of us, the ego and our wounds, also have a place in a more enlightened life. So we're not banishing parts of ourselves. We're integrating them. We're not oppressing any parts of our human nature or mother nature or each other. We're finding ways to include and transcend where we can and celebrate when we can our similarities and our variations. That's unity. And a vibrant future can only come from the intelligence of love, of unity consciousness. There's so many ways to go backwards, and there is only one way forward. And that is not restrictive. That is liberation. So moving forward, if I may, I am going to now divide humanity into three categories. One, there are going to be the stone-hearted. They are cynical. They are corrupt. They may work for the dark side. They are led by their ego. They're sad. They're wounded. Their subconscious is driving them. Their ambitions are formed based on their unhealed wounds. They are going to require more love, more patience, and more direction and clarity from all others than ever before. So we got the stone-hearteds. Then we got the half-hearteds. Um, not to be mistaken with muggles, because muggles could be stone-hearted and full-hearted. Uh, the half-hearted, they want a better life, um, but they don't really want to give up their comforts. They don't really want to trade in their restrictive, limiting ideologies for paradigm-busting, uh, viewpoint-shattering ideologies. They love status quo. They love cozy. They love consumption. They really want things to get back to normal. Definitely not interested in confronting fear, dealing with inner child wounds, going into the subconscious, or doing the painful but oh, joy-inducing work of opening their hearts to, well, to themselves, really, but definitely not to their neighbors or their opposition. But hey, we've all been there. So there's the half-hearteds. Lord have mercy. They're coming with us too. And then there are the full-hearteds. So let's just say that that's us. If you're here listening, the full-hearteds. And you know who you are and you know how it feels. You know that joy pulsing in your cells. You can see a vision of a future that includes everybody. It is bright. It is utopian. You can smell it. You want to be part of it, and you know that you are part of its unfolding. You know that you are being called to lead. Here's the thing. If you are a full-hearted, if you identify as a light worker, if you identify as part of the gorgeous order that is unfolding, you are going to have to pick up the slack. To those who much is given, much is going to be asked. And you are going to pick up the slack and be tolerant and inviting and the true embodiment of patience because that's what's called for, because you can. Because we are going to have to love on everyone. We are going to have to lead and create and build things even if others don't want to join in immediately. We're going to have to preach 
and model and be quiet and loud. We're going to have to elect and give and donate and sing and create and give some more and even more. We're going to have to do this in the face of resistance. We are going to have to unite and invite all sectors of society and every kind of person. And there is inevitably going to be very disheartening moments. We're going to get frustrated. There's going to be a lot of resistance. And we're going to be like, really, did you not live through 2020 with the rest of the world? But it's okay. We have the light. We are the light. We see the light. We are being lit upon. We are opening ourselves up to divine guidance. And it's okay. That beautiful, ideal future lives within our hearts. It lives in everybody's hearts. It's the human potential. The difference is the full-hearted see the potential. And we're going to do the work of nurturing that potential. So we're going to breathe. And we're going to carry on with our plans to run city council and reform our children's school curriculum and to lead our companies to pour its profits back into the community. We're going to go a bit wild because the heart is feral. Love always comes home. And we will let love rule because we will rule with love. You're going to be called crazy. And we're going to be called idealistic and rebellious, and too soft, and too new age, and also spiritual, and irrational, impractical, unreasonable, we will be called utopian. And it won't be the first time. And that's all right, because this moment was made for us, and we're going to bring everybody with us. So here's our reflection questions. Back to the question of the day. Here it is. Dear God, sup? God, tell me what's happening. Where would you have me go? What would you have me do? What would you have me say and to whom? And then ask yourself, and God, here's some biggies. Who am I? Who am I? What do I need to let go of to be who I truly am? What do I need to let go of to be who I truly am? Now let's get practical. How do I see my own relationships and community and the world at large becoming more inclusive in nature? See it. Feel it. Put that on top of your faith. How do I see my own relationships and community and the world at large becoming more inclusive in nature? And this one. How will I give my great love to the world to contribute to group consciousness? How will I give my great love to the world to contribute to group consciousness? Here's a little group of my consciousness. Harper, Renee, Matt, Christina, Ben, Todd, Cindy, 
Corey, Michelle, Wesley, Dana, Marika. That's my guest list for my taco party. That's the taco party I was scheduled to have the day before we decided the wisest thing to do was to go into retreat. I had the table set. We had the groceries bought. And I had little tiny votive candles, one at each place setting. Got some fabric, made a new tablecloth. My kid was in charge of playlists. And I texted my friends and just said, you know what? I think it's best that we hold off for now. I folded up the tablecloth, but all of those votive candles are still in the dining room. And I'm looking forward to lighting them. It's going to be the taco party of the century. And here's what I know for sure. That taco party will happen. And we will be overflowing with love with joy, with a greater vision for community, with renewed faith and hope. The playlist is going to be rocking, the candles will be lit, and the hugs will... Oh, it's going to be the best hugs ever. Those tacos, they're going to happen. But I'm not sure who I will be then, because I'm committed to dying to my ego, and to my dreams, and to everything that is standing between me and my knowing that I am love. I am going to be serving up a huge side dish of transmutation with those tacos, and little tiny slices of lime. And I'm expanding the guest list. You're all invited. You're all invited. You're all invited. Every single one of you. My future self, my future self lives in a heart-centered world where we have been impacted by grace. We are the stewards of the planet. We are the keepers of each other's wellness. It's a world of people over profits, higher love over self-obsession. Inclusiveness is the strategic objective. In this beautiful ideal, compassion is common sense, and greed is a distant memory. Purposefulness is the metric of success. And here's the bonus. Nutrient-rich soil, food as medicine, debt relief, holistic healing, a living wage, affordable housing, and clean drinking water for everyone on the planet because we all take care of each other. Unity is our immunity. It's a simpler, elegant life, replete with love and gardens and meaningful conversation. My future self doesn't want what I wanted before. She's enraptured to give, so she doesn't need as much. She's made a habit of first looking to see the beauty in people and all situations. Her heart solves every problem. She designs systems of virtues where everybody's in. 
She's looking out for all of us, smiling in ceaseless prayer. She's not waiting on anyone or anything for permission. She is sovereign and hugging so many hugs. Every night, she lets a few more desires die in order to rest in love. And every morning, she faces upward to creation and says, Okay, thy will be done. Use me up. It looks a lot like heaven on earth. This is grace for impact. May this passage gracefully lead us to one love. May this passage gracefully lead us to one love. May this passage gracefully lead us to one love. All right, loves, you know where to find me, daniellelaporte.com, and all social media everywhere, ever. Questions and love notes can be sent to support at daniellelaporte.com. This podcast is skillfully produced by Kelly Winham. You can find her at Face for Radio. That's face hyphen for the number hyphen radio.com. And I give all thanks to Team D for helping me do what I do. I love you. And I love you too.